Whether it's for work or play, we rely on home internet so much these days. Being connected and staying connected has never been more important. So if you want reliable internet bought you at speed, switch to Aussie Broadband. It only takes a few minutes to sign up and their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Find out more at aussiebroadband.com.au. T's and C's apply. What a huge guest we have this week for Dylan Friends. Mark Wales is an ex-commander in the SAS. He embarked on 10 tours of duty, including four tours in Afghanistan. We spoke about his journey from school in Perth to his 11 years of training and education to reach the SAS. Mark broke down often misguided public perceptions of the SAS, as well as providing incredible insights into the training, services and lifestyle he experienced during his time in the Defence Force. Absolutely love chatting with Mark. He's an incredibly open guy. He had so much to offer in the many lifetimes he's lived. You can tell he's a go-getter with all the career choices he's doing and he's not even done yet. Make sure you check out his new book, Survivor, Life in the SAS. It's a must-read and it's out now. Hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If you're listening on Spotify, make sure you give it a follow. iTunes, subscribe, anything else, I'm not sure. Let's go. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast. Many ways, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears. 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 Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to the Olympics? <laughs> They're sitting there meditating, going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How this is this? I'm meditating. It's like, <laughs> I had a Wu Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, it's like, <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Mark Wales, welcome to the Dylan Friends Podcast, my friend. It's an honour, it's a pleasure, it's a privilege to, to have you in the studio and um, something I've been really looking forward to for a long time. Mate, I love your setup here and uh, thanks for having me. It's, it's good to be back in the Melbourne CBD after a, a long year. <laughs> yeah, it has been a very, very long year, mate. Um, you have a story that is incredible. It's, it's multifaceted. It, like, we could do a series on it. We will just saying before, I don't know how we're going to fit everything in, but we're going to try our best. Beauty. Let's go back to the start, okay? You're a young man growing up in WA. Um, we love our WA. got a big supporter base over in WA. It's They're beautiful good. people um, on the Pilbara. Take us back there, mate. Young man, and you're in school, and you decide, look, the Army's for me. It was always an option. Yeah, I think um, when I was... When I, when I was... I was basically born in the north of WA, like up in the Pilbara, so... Um, eventually moved down to Perth and it's just Perth a long way from anything. I mean, in the nineties, it was a long way from any of the big cities. So most of my family, we were tradies or, uh, you know, dad worked in the mine up in, up in Newman. So, um, the expectations for us weren't high. Our parents were just happy if we weren't out causing too much trouble. So, um, eventually when I was in high school once though, I saw some pictures from the Iranian embassy siege, which was in London in 1980. And it just had the had the pictures of these guys dressed in black storming a building, um, rescuing all these hostages. So uh, when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, who are these guys? And um, that's when I started doing some homework and realised that they were SAS, they were British SAS. They had this long history going all the way back to World War II and they were elite soldiers and um, it was super hard to get into. So I thought, you know what, I've, uh, this is the path I want to take. And I found out Australia had an SAS as well, and that was like, oh, this might actually be doable. I might be able to go through the army and actually, you know, get get into this force potentially. I suppose we were chatting off air about this earlier, but 
this is literally today going to be a podcast for dummies learning about the defense force the SAS mm. your story yep. what actually goes on you know overseas in in these tours and and how it all plays out because in a way in Australia we're so blind to what actually happens and I, you know speaking from my point of view I have really no idea how this even transpires how do you go into the army how do you join the defense force how do you get into the SAS what do you actually do what's a tour um, and hoping today we can unpack all those things, which I'm sure we will. Your journey, how did that happen? You, you joined the Defence Force out of school. As a, as a, is it a uni degree that you do there? Yeah, so I, when I first heard about the SAS, I was like, how do I actually get in? And I rang the front gate. They had like a guard room down there, and I picked up the phone and called <laughs> them. I was like, I wanted to talk to someone. And the guy goes, who is this? And I went, oh, it's Mark. I'm in high school, and I wanted to join the SAS. He's like... Who are you? <laughs> and I went, no, no, seriously, it's just a like kid from high school. And he goes, well, you've got to go to the recruiting agency and talk to them about it. We're not going to say anything here. I was like, okay. And I went down to the rec- recruiting agency in Northbridge in Perth and said, you know, I want to um, try and join the army because I knew you had to go through the army to try and get to the SAS. And um, as I looked at that world, I started to see kind of more and more how it's kind of built so you, there is the army, but there's also these other branches within it. So you, you can be a dentist in the army or you can be a, you can drive a tank or you can be a, a foot soldier. So there are all these different specialisations in the military and I had to learn about this stuff. And the thing that I saw that attracted me to the army was an infantry soldier, which is a foot soldier, because I knew it would be the hardest job in there, like to actually have to carry a weapon and, and be on foot in these um, combat zones would be quite hard. And so when I was looking at applying, I thought, you know, what do I do? Do I try and go direct to the army? Or there's this other training establishment called ADFA, which is where Australian Defence Force Academy, which is where you can go and you get a secondary, you get a, a degree basically. So I thought, you know what, I'll try and go through this Defence Academy, which, which then takes you to Duntroon because at least I'll have, you know, a school qualification. So if I go through the army, I don't get the SAS, at least I've got something to fall back on. Um, and that's what took me down the path of becoming an officer. And so to apply, you have to finish year 12 and you do all your tests and psych tests and they make sure you physically don't have serious issues. And then if you got, get all that right, you go to a panel of military officers and they basically watch you work. They do these tests where they watch you in a group over a day and they get you to present. And uh, it's pretty kind of old fashioned, but they're just watching how you interact and work in a team, whether you're, you can fit in or whether you're a total idiot they're just trying to see that in people and they want to know kind of what they're dealing with. And then they make a recommendation based on whether you can join or not. And so that's kind of what I was heading towards in grade 12. And I started like doing running and trying to be fit and, and stay out of trouble uh, just so I could I could meet the requirements to get in. And that's kind of what got me started. I love that. I love that you've just <laughs> picked up the phone and just calling the SAS straight up. Just being like, look, hey, Keen has to join. Like, where do I sign up? Just, yeah, just thinking that it's just like that exactly. easy. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll come right down the yeah. barracks now. Just, Keen, mate, yeah, what train me up. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable though. And that's like you know we always chat about this on on this show, but um, you know from your story, you're, you're a doer. Like you don't really think about things. You're just like, no, if there's something I want to do, I do it. And I'm sure we'll get into a lot more of those uh, parts of you. Something I forgot about, but I in grade ten because the year after I decided I want to go there, I applied to do work experience at the SAS. So people were going off into different companies and, and doing work experience and uh i told my grade instructor i'm like i want to go try do it at the at the regiment she goes i don't think we can do that it's never been you know done before yeah. 
And so they, I think they, the school wrote letters to the barracks and the barracks said, yeah, we'll take him. And it was me and one other kid from another school just randomly. We went down there and they put us in the gym with the physical instructors for two weeks. And, uh, and when I was at the gym, I got to see all the, the relics of the SAS and the base and the, some of the weapons and I heard of the stories about what they'd done in, the, in this, you know, Vietnam and, and then in, in Gulf War One. Um, there was not not Gulf War One, nineteen ninety eight. There'd been some um, some deployments that had happened, but um, yeah, I was only a kid, and it was great to see the base and everything that would, you know that was there. It's it's so fascinating, and even today, as you said, there's so many different ways you can get in there. It's not one mm. you know route into the, into the SAS. So you joined the R the RDA, RDAF. Adfa is the Adfa. Uh, is the academy, yeah, Australian Defence Force Academy, and that's over in Canberra. And what's the what's the the rules of that? Like you go in there, you obviously, as you said, you're studying and you're also doing your basic training. Yeah, I went I went there. I'm like, how's this actually set up? So they're partnered with University of New South Wales, and there's a campus, and and you go over there and do induction. So you get military training when you first join, and it's kind of it's just basic, you know, weapons handling and drill and marching around, and an introduction to military life. And I don't think anyone kind of forgets their first day of being in the military, um, and once you're in the in the gate there, you do your military training, and then during the year you do academic training. So you go on to classes. I was doing an undergrad in um, history and politics, and um, yeah, you do you do that for three years, and in your uni break, you're off in the bush doing field training rather than on, on holiday. And for you, from that training, is that a smooth transition? Is that like straight away you went, okay, now I'm going to apply for the SAS and and go from there? No, I kind of saw a path which was going to be all right. I'm going to go through the officer training, which is four years. I'm going to go into the wider army, which is going to be the, the infantry battalions. And so they're in Townsville and Darwin. I'm going to join one of those battalions. I'm going to try and do my best there. And after spending two or three years in a battalion, you can then apply for SAS selection. Right. So how so, long is this process all up? So it took me, well, it took, uh, so four years of training in the army and then another three years in the battalion wow. before I got onto selection. So it took, yeah, it was 11 years to start to finish from when I decided I want to go to the army to when I got to <laughs> the actual selection course. Unbelievable. It was a long time. It's a long time. And, yeah. and with the selection as well, is it, is it as simple as you, anyone can apply or you have to be approached to go, no, nah, you're allowed to apply for this? No, anyone can apply and then you, you sit another battery of tests there. So you go through, uh, you know, everything from psychometric testing to a physical barrier test. Um, they check your discipline record. There's, there's all these little gates they put you through again and then they say, all right, you, you, you're clear to attend SAS selection, you can go on. And that's when you march on. And ev- even then, you know, once you're on, the pass rates may be anywhere from 10 to 15% sort of thing. This is huge and, and this is something that I suppose I've – been so fascinated uh, fascinated about for so long you've seen movies you know in, in the US they call mm. it Hell Week I think I'm not sure if they refer <laughs> yeah. to it um, as that in Australia but the SAS selection criteria is obviously it is an extremely extremely tough process um, what takes place in these camps like what sort of testing is it is it physical I'm assuming a lot of it's physical but is it more physical from your point of view or is it more mental side of training to, to harden you and actually get you ready for what might be taking place yeah when they first get you you know it's going to be about a three-week course the three first weeks. selection period yeah to say all right you're suitable to do the the rest of the training to become an SAS soldier um 
And so I knew it was broken into roughly three phases. You know, there's like a, an opening week where they give you a battery of tests, um, long range pack marches, running in kind of um, body armor and with a weapon, um, fitness tests, uh, you know, all sorts of navigation tests. And this is all done so that the people that aren't, haven't prepared get knocked out of the course straight away. And there's a strong correlation between people that pass those kind of opening um, tests. Uh, and finishing selection. If you can pass those tests, you have a much higher probability of finishing the selection course. So they, they do that up front, and that's kind of when I was there actually, and I remember seeing it, that was kind of designed to weed out the unprepared. And then there was a middle phase, and that was called, uh, I think it was called Happy Wanderer. And that's an endurance phase where you're given a, a pack and a set of checkpoints, and over five or six days, you've got to navigate your way through the bush on your own. Um, you, you don't know how long you're out there for, you don't know. You know, you can't talk to anyone. You've, it's psychologically quite hard and you're under under a lot of stress when you're trying to get through the bush, really rough terrain, trying to meet these checkpoints. So you're like a solo mission by yourself solo trying mission. to find certain checkpoints. Yeah. It gives me anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And you just, you, it, it was very, very tough. Um, and there's no one on your back shouting at you, but it's still the motivation. It's almost harder being by yourself. It's, it's all internal motivation. And that's the hardest thing about the course is, you have to get up every day after two hours of sleep and go and throw yourself into it again. And there's no one there shouting at you, telling you to do it. It all comes from kind of within you. Um, they treat you like a, you know, like an adult. It's it's un, it's good like that. And then the final phase is kind of, uh, you know, similar to that hell week where you put in small teams and the expectation is that you work together under really tough conditions. You don't get sleep, you don't get food, and you've got to execute these really tough missions around the clock. Um, 24-7 and they're watching to see how people work together in teams under simula- under situation that's really really simulates combat conditions because um, that's what it's like you don't, you don't sleep much you're always under stress it's um it's hard I suppose as well you know it's, it's getting you ready for that worst case scenario as you said um, I don't want to fast forward this too much but those situations in in that selection period is did anything compare to that in actual battle or do you think that hell week was like so hard that when you're in battle you could go back you know what i got through this i can get through this i think um the training i think no one forgets that selection course it's that bloody hard it's it's uh you know you're at your worst in in a lot of situations um and in some cases it's i think it's even harder than combat because you're combat's a bit clearer you got a mission you, you you know what you're executing towards um, sometimes on selection it was pretty difficult so um, yeah the training prepares you well it tra- prepares you really well for combat success rate of that selection I think anywhere from 10 to 20 percent and then you've got to get through 18 months of training where you can you can still be kicked out during that phase as well wow that's unbelievable so how many people would sign up for that first one as you said you weed out the good people that aren't as prepared early to then get to the end how many of you would would graduate of that SAS team that year? Yeah, so I think there was about, there was roughly 100 on the year I joined and there were about 20 at the end. And actually there's a there's a phase I skipped over. So I was joining as an officer. So I would be a captain going to the SAS and you have to do, there was a section in there called the officer module. And I, when I did it, it was like 20, it was like 48 or 72 hours where they pulled aside the officers and they made us do um, really complex planning missions that we then have to brief to experienced SAS guys and they mm. rip our plans to shreds 
and, and all these difficult kind of mental challenges, and that was used to test the, the planning capabilities of the, of the officers in the group. One thing I had, you know, obviously listened to a lot of podcasts with Sam, we were so fascinated about your story. And one thing that really surprised me, but now that you've said it in this other show, I, it made sense, but you're a big boy. You're 6'3", <laughs> large six, three. boy. Yeah, Heavy. You could eat me easily. <laughs> Maybe. And uh, No, definitely. But the biggest part that was crazy was, and I think the misconception of someone that thinks of the SAS, you think these guys are all big boys, um, you know, strong, everything. But you were saying that it's, it's actually... Uh, sometimes a bit harder to be a bigger lad and get into the SAS team. Normally it's sort of smaller, wirier guys that can move around a fair bit. Yeah, I don't think there's a there's a particular type. Like I've seen all shapes and sizes in the unit, but they're generally all uh, robust guys. Um, they're not that archetypal, you know, Rambo-looking bloke. They're, they're, they're unassuming, strong-looking guys. You'd see them on the street and you, you probably wouldn't look twice at some of them. They're, they're just standard size guys that, that are uh, strong and just have really high levels of motivation and, and resilience. So, yeah, and I, I'm a bigger guy. I'm on the bigger end of, of the spectrum there. And I think that meant I knew I would have to work harder on the endurance stuff. That would be my weakness. Um, but if you can get over the threshold, the minimum threshold for that, then the rest you can you can do too. So Something that as well with this, with this training I'm so fascinated about and I think it's so prevalent in, in SAS that you need to be good at is above the shoulders and that resilience, that mental thinking under pressure, resilience, all these things. Was it crazy, I suppose, going into these, um, these SAS selection camp and you probably see four or five guys from an outside perspective thinking, geez, this bloke's big, he's strong, looks like a leader, looks fantastic, he's got the big muscles and everything. But then it gets to those times where... Oh, sorry. And then you see someone else where you go, geez, this bloke's going to last three minutes. And then throughout the camp, it just totally flips. Yeah. I, I remember jumping on the bus on the way up to Bindoon and I saw a guy sitting on the bus and he was about five foot two, looked like he was about 16. And he, he was, he was shitting himself. His yeah. eyes are darting around. I was like, mate, do your parents know you're down here? Yeah. And, uh, you know, sure enough, he was there at the end, just, uh, you know, he was a real blood and guts guy. He just hung in there and was really strong and became one of my closest mates actually on the reinforcement cycle. And then there's these other guys, these, these big axes from the battalion that are battalion legends and fought in the recon teams and, and they just disappear. Uh, so it was not what you would seem. It would, guys would stick around that you just wouldn't expect yeah. um, to still be there at the end. It's kind of a, it's an unusual bunch of, of guys, but they all have similar traits in that sense. They're all well motivated they got high levels of self-discipline high levels of self-control um good problem solvers good leaders like it's it's a good selection course it's really well run at least when i saw it it's huge man. I, you know i get goosebumps actually thinking about that because it, it seems like by the end of these these camps that you just have such a belief in each other and i suppose that's the aim of the camp is you, you're going to be going into life or death situations if you can't trust the person that you're next to um, you know, how are you going to trust them when it's the heat of battle? Yeah, the training's good because you're constantly being put in situations that just uh, are just outside of what you can do. They're, they're just a bit uncomfortable and you're constantly in that discomfort zone and because of that you're growing, you're growing a lot. And, and by the end of the training, by the end of the 18 months, you're now capable of doing stuff that you would never have thought mm. you could do at the start. But the, the Army's very good at training people. They do it incrementally, they're safe, they do it repetitively. And the good thing about the special forces teams is they just do the basics really well. They do it better than anyone. 
um, because doing the basics consistently all the time um, is actually hard. It's hard to do that stuff, but they're, they're just good at it. They hammer away at it until they've got it down and, and can do it without thinking. I feel like as well, I'm, I'm really harping on this, I apologise, but I'm so interested in this, this, how, this, um, this selection process of even when uh, you know, the commanders or the people in charge are, are running these courses, I feel like, and it'd be good to get obviously the answer on this, is no matter what the challenge is, and even if you did it at the best of the ability, they could be like, go do that again. And it's not the fact that you actually did it. It's more to see like yeah. the setback and how you then deal with it and keep going and keep going and just not give up and, and crack it. Yeah, there was, there was one story I tell about. Um, we, we went down to this like parade ground area that was all pea gravel, size of a couple of tennis courts. And there were three ambulances parked down there with mm-hmm. the doors open. And uh, we knew we were about to do a, like a beasting kind of session. And um, just the fear. And once we got down there, we were on these big green ropes. We had to do push-ups and move them. And we're on, we're in the push-up position for nearly three hours. Um, and th- we kept failing at the mission they'd given us, which was to move these ropes a certain distance. And they, they knew we were never going to achieve what they wanted us to do. But they were watching the mental breakdown of people when the stress of that started to get to them. And some people would kind of... Um, would really let themselves spiral mentally and would pull out of the, the selection course because of it. And some other guys would just kind of hang in there, just persevere. I think that became a, a theme that you don't necessarily have to be the best, but you, you have to be there at the end, you know. Um, what, yeah. what did you do in those situations? Like, what, Do you think that was hardwired in you for the resilience or was it something you had to work on to actually be present and be like, this is what they're doing, I just can't fucking give up? Yeah, I think I gave myself permission. I, I had that kind of self-talk where it's like, you're going to make mistakes on this and you're not going to do it like once every now and then. You're going to be doing it every 20 minutes, right? And I just said to myself, you've got to be comfortable making mistakes and putting it behind you and keep going. And I think that's the hardest bit is not letting those ne- that negative self-talk accumulate. If you can find a way to kind of put it behind you and keep moving forward, that's it's kind of key because there's nothing you can do about it once it's it's done but you can learn from it and you can keep going so you're going to fail it's just your your response to it is what you can control for sure it's 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 a massive point like i look i'm i'm even precursing this before because there's nothing like anything you've done but i i talk about <laughs> pre-season and running for example and the only way that i could like trick myself into getting through sessions sometimes not again i precursor this anyone listening i'm not comparing myself to an SAS soldier but you put yourself in such a uncomfortable position you almost get to a stage sometimes where you're like i actually can't be in any more pain than i am right now <laughs> like even if i keep going i'm just, i'm in i'm so stuck and sore yeah. it's not going to get any worse than yeah. this yeah it's actually and what you're talking about is exactly the same thing as what we do and it's the same in any any team of people that are trying to achieve something at a high level doesn't matter if it's sport or the military or politics or an er team there's you join as a team there's values there's a certain skill level you need to achieve there's training there's your own kind of psychology in this that it might be a goal of yours and there's a lot of fear and hope attached to it it's exactly the same situation um those elite teams and i the same thing i had when i was trying to play high level footy i had those same feelings of discomfort and fear and you know and needing to persevere they're all there in, in sport too yeah you graduate selection is that what it's called uh, yeah, you, you pass selection. You pass selection. Pass selection and then you go into the reinforcement cycle, which is 
the the training courses that you need and a whole squadron of guys handles this at SAS. They're all the training courses you need to be fully qualified to go out and do the work of a, of a special forces soldier. Okay, so you go into another form of training after this. Yeah, yeah, you do. So once you're done, you, you do all all the detailed skills they've got. So you, you work in close country and you'll get training in how to move around and be in camouflage and then you get, uh, you know, parachuting, you do demolitions and heavy weapons, um, all these skills that you would just dream about in the battalions and never get to do, they had this stuff kind of on tap. So it was, um, it was great like that. That's, um, so just those things you were talking about there, which was, it was funny how calmly you were talking about parachuting <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. How dangerous is this SAS training, um, the selection training? The, the, some of the training is really dangerous because it's done at a super high level. And the idea is it's, it's got to be at a really high level, live rounds, you know, in the dark, night vision, because that's, that's what we're going to face in combat. And so they don't baby you in training. They, they, we do it safely, but sometimes you're exposed to really da- dangerous situations. Um, you know, Black Hawk accident, uh, I think it was mid-90s, <coughs> two Black Hawks collided on approach to target. And I think it was about 16 guys were killed. Own, like, friendly... Uh, yeah, two helicopters, two um, two Blackhawks collided and a lot of guys were killed in that. I had a mate killed in the South Pacific in a helicopter crash, um, vehicle accidents. Um, it's dangerous stuff. It's really dangerous training. And um, before you've even gotten to combat, you've got to get through all that stuff. And, and we've got the names on the memorial of a lot of guys that died training. It's, it's um, risky. What is the role of an SAS soldier? I know that's a very... Dumb question, I feel like. But what is the difference between a SAS uh, soldier and someone that is fighting on the ground in the in the defence force? I think the difference is that the so there's a couple of different areas. One is the the standards of equipment and training and is much higher. Obviously, you're in a special force, you've yeah. got you've got more resourcing for that. But then the most important distinction is the the level of the task that you're given. So ours will be more in the strategic realm, which means it might be something that the Prime Minister wants done which directly affects Australia's interests. So it might be like, all right, there's been two hostages taken in the middle of Cambodia. Um, We need a team to go and get them out. Um, SAS, you're going to work with these people and you're going to help get them out. You just wouldn't give those jobs to, to soldiers with basic training. So the expectations and the jobs and the the individual responsibilities of people in the unit is much, much higher. And a couple of times I was there, I got briefings and I'd just be like, I felt out of my depth. I'm like, yeah. oh, oh my God, this is heavy stuff. Like some of the things we might have to do are quite quite heavy. A lot of your um, tours that you do and these missions that you do, as you said then, like you felt like sometimes you're out of place. You're talking about missions that the Prime Minister is sending your team and your unit to do. Are you allowed to like talk about all of these things or were there some missions where you weren't that you know they were top secret they're all they're all considered top secret but um the only thing i don't cover is like the tactics and the detail but funnily enough it's kind of not the interesting part of the interesting part is is how the units configured and how the you know the um how the politics how the politics works behind us getting sent away and what what ends up happening for us and i think afghanistan was a good example where we were sent in initially to do a a job and then we stayed there for a long time and probably probably beyond what was useful um so yeah that was an interesting one how how is that because again i'm referencing this to movie because i've never been in the defense force or in the sas but you know i watch a movie called saving private ryan one of the most famous you know war movies of all time cracker and it's <laughs> it's that thing it's it's 
no matter what happens in in these missions, the the overarching rule of anything is like do what you're commanded to do and respect you know the messages coming from above. How do you find that if you if you don't necessarily agree with what's going on or you sort of have difference difference in views? Is it hard to so stick to the mission and and really complete it? It's it's interesting the way we do it is that there's a high level of really planning and involvement of everyone when we're trying to pull the mission together. So everyone debates the different approaches we can do. But once the decision is made around how we're going to do it, that's it. Everyone just goes. Yeah, all, all like everyone gets behind it and we just go because it's, you really can't have a lot of – you can't hold back when you go into these missions and, and be second-guessing yourself. If you commit to it, you've really got to go all in. And so I think, um, I think for us it was – that's what we did. We got these missions and we just said, all right, we're just going to go all in on these. And we never thought about the politics of it. We were there for each other. So, yeah. and, and the meticulous planning that goes into these missions, how structured and how planned out are, are these moves that you have to do and how strict are the structures of, of what has to take place? Oh, they, they're planned down to like, you know, Jimmy's going to have item X in his left pocket, which is related to the you know radio stuff. Like it's down to you know where what people are wearing, um, what time you're going to leave, what your formation, all this all this information that you can control, you, you plan meticulously, and then there's all these other things you can't affect that the enemy can do to you, and so that becomes what the, what we call war gaming. You, you consider all these different scenarios about how the enemy can interfere with that mission, and you plan out your response in advance, and so what happens is that doesn't always unfold that way on the ground, but if something something comes out of left field, there's a chance you've at least already thought about how you're going to deal with it. It just makes you a lot more agile when it happens. So, you f- yeah, you feel like you've literally crossed over every moment or every scenario that you can possibly have and you've got a plan of action for it. Yeah, like a good example, and this isn't from Australian forces, but when they did the, the Bin Laden raid, right, so Osama Bin Laden, one of the helicopters crashed yeah. on insertion. That's a, huge, that's a huge deal. Like that's a really big risk in a mission. They would have planned that a number of times and that's why you saw them in the film they're running over putting explosives on the helicopter and grabbing gear out of it because that in the rehearsals they would have talked exactly about that if this happens and they would have said you know what jimmy you're going to have the charges you go over there if this happens and you're going to blow it up so that advanced planning and thinking is where the kind of magic happens um, because your plan is always going to come apart it's always going to under pressure it's going to unravel in some way and it's just how you deal with that um, that matters Thousands of Aussies trust Aussie Broadband to keep them connected to the world, even when they're on the go. Because as well as reliable home internet, Aussie Broadband also offers flexible mobile plans with super generous data allowances and no locking contracts. Their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help you make the switch. It only takes a few minutes. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Search Aussie Broadband Mobile to find out more. T's and C's apply. What, I suppose, are some of the stories that you would reflect on now being like some of the most intense uh, tours or, or missions that, that you were a part of? Um, one for me was one of the first missions I did uh, on my first deployment over there. It was, uh, we were asked to clear the Chora Valley and it was in late 2007. And I talk about this actually in the book because it was the first time we, we ran into a heavy combat um, on a mission. And Basically, we went in there to run this clearance. There was kind of 80 to 100 Taliban, I think they were saying. And our team was doing all the advanced force operations. So we were going behind enemy lines, looking at what the enemy were doing, trying to figure out where they were so that when the mission came, we were, we were ahead of the curve already. Um, 
and on the first morning, we kind of inserted in the dark and got set up. And um, in the morning, all the clearance force landed and took out and started clearing through the, uh, the, the section of the valley that we were in. And uh, me and my team picked up and went to another part of the valley further south to put in basically an ambush. And as we're moving down there, we ran into uh, Taliban kind of defensive positions. And um, that started a battle that, that went for, for a long time. And we were, it took us till, that was in the morning. We didn't get out until that night. So we were in there for a long time and uh, ended up being a heavy battle. Um, one of my team leaders was shot and killed in the opening kind of minutes of the battle. And, I mean, we train for that all the time. We say, if we have a man down, this is what we're going to do. We're going to move him. And, and so we had to change our whole mission kind of on the fly to, to try and get this guy out who'd been, who'd been shot and badly wounded. So it was full on. It was full on. How, and look, I, I suppose I know the answer to this, but how do you deal with that, like, sudden change straight away? Do you go straight into, like, autopilot of training? Is that how, like, you're so much in the moment that you go, fuck, this is what we need to do next? Yeah, I think that there's almost like a cutout switch in your mind. There's so much happening that you're like, all right, there's a lot happening that I'm just not going to deal with right now. We're just going to do, we're going to do one thing and then we're going to do this thing. And you're looking five seconds into the future sometimes. You're just like, I'm just going to survive through this bit. I'm going to jump in this ditch and then I'm going to, uh, you know, speak to this guy. And you're, you're making decisions in tiny increments because you know to survive, you've just got to get to that next step. And then once we were kind of secure, that's when you start, thinking about how to move troops around and how you're going to suppress the enemy and how you're going to get helicopters in. And and that's, I guess, where you go from just trying to survive to, all right, now we, we really have to come up with a plan to to defeat what we're dealing with. How did you – are you allowed to go into context of how you did get out of that scenario? Like what, what ended yeah. up transpiring? Um, so what we did was – we all pushed up to this kind of uh, this low ditch called an aqueduct. It's, it's kind of knee height or waist height, and it's just enough cover to get in there and get protection from gunfire. So we were in there, um, we were pinned down, dealing with a casualty, and we got there were two Apache gunships. These are attack helicopters. They're above us and on the Australian side, or were they from the Taliban? No, Australian side. Yeah. I'd be worried if the Taliban were driving those. Yeah, things yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'd be in real trouble. But. Um, we, we had attack helicopters above us and some of my guys was talking directly to the helicopters and marking the enemy positions with smoke. And so I, all this was happening as I was trying to move troops in place. And uh, I remember hearing the first kind of uh, cannon strike go in on the tree line, kind of maybe about 100 metres away. It was pretty close. And uh, the tree line just bloody erupted in, in all this heavy cannon fire. And... Um, I remember seeing going, holy shit, if they're that close, then we're, we're in a bit of trouble. And so the, the Apaches were trying to suppress the enemy that were on the other side of us. And um, I kind of remember saying, hey, I think they're going to come around our flank. I remember talking to the, to the guy next to me. I think they're going to come around this, this flank in the river. And luckily, one of the guys in the team had a good idea about putting a sniper team up on, that, on, on a, basically a little hill, little section of high ground about thousand meters away to our left and they were protecting our flank they could see people coming up the river while we were in the thick kind of green belt thick vegetation and um, they started shooting in support of us so we had kind of uh, gunships firing on one flank and snipers firing the other and I could hear their kind of heavy rounds coming down the valley and um, and they were they were landing close to us like very close. I could I could kind of see the trees moving as the as the bullets were coming in from our snipers, and I was thinking, 
they're bloody close because it's hard to see, right? You're trying to stay low. It is hard to see enemy to your front. So you're trained to shoot at areas where you think they might be hiding. So we were we were basically just trying to get space and, and suppress the enemy so we could move a bit. And eventually we did, we were able to kind of suppress them enough that we could move this guy back who'd been hit and um, bring helicopters in to try and evacuate him. And the helicopters that flew in, this is in broad daylight now, the helicopters that flew in flew over the Taliban formation and they got they got shot up. Um, you know, they, they took about, I think it was about seven rounds, one helicopter took seven rounds. And um, yeah, they landed and we got we got this this guy on and got him flying back to base. But um, unfortunately, he'd, he'd already died. He was he was badly wounded. So yeah, it was it was full on. It was a full on day, and that was the first time really that I'd been in a, a battle like that. And it was uh, it was a tough day. I can't even imagine how you then be in that battle in the moment. You've just lost, you know, a friend, um, a commander. How do you deal with that? Like how, what transpires from there? Do you go back to base and like, do you talk about it with your team? Do you, what, yeah. what happens? Yeah, and funnily enough, there was no, there was no rule book on this. No one had really talked about it. It wasn't that common in the Australian army. This is 2007. Um, there'd been a guy killed in a, in a mine blast a couple of weeks earlier. And there'd also been an SAS guy killed in a mine blast five years earlier in Afghanistan. But there was no kind of, you know, playbook on how you deal with that. It was it was hard. It was a hard thing. I think what we had on our side was the the guys in my team are older. They're more mature. Um, they have a better grasp of the risk and the situation that we're in. And we all know that risk. And you know that you could go out and be killed. And that's part of the job. So I think that made it easier for people to kind of um, to grasp and move on with. But it's it's elevated the emotions of me in a way that I'd never dealt with in training. There was never that that fear or, or grief, I think, that I'd felt and that sense of, you know, even anger, like you want to you want to get you want to get back at them, right? Mm. And that's not there in training necessarily. So that it, it, the human dimension of it played a bigger role than than I guess I expected. That was your your first tour, your first mission that you'd done? Yeah, that was my first deployment to Afghanistan I'd done other missions to like East Timor and um I'd actually been to East Timor three times by then in in, in Iraq but that was the first kind of real combat mission yeah and would you say is that the closest in your whole career that you came to to feeling you were in a bit of strife as well yeah that was the that was the first time I was like I grasped just how dangerous this guy could actually be fucking shot here yeah you kind of know it but then when you when you're confronted with it I think I, I realized then you're like, oh, you can get yourself in serious trouble. But also it it um, it made me better later on because I understood, I guess, some of the risks involved and how you can get yourself in trouble and how you can kind of get around that. So I think in a way we got better at we got better after that. That was that was pretty high risk. Ten tours, um, as you mentioned, four in Afghanistan. What is a tour? How does it work? How long do they go for? Are they all quite similar in, in length? Is it more, uh, um, you know, on a, on a specific mission, as you said before, on what you need to do? Like, how does, how does that work? Yeah, it's, tour is considered, another, wo- another phrase for it is a deployment. So you'll get an order, say, you know, your battalion is going to deploy to East Timor. You're going to take over from the third battalion that's there now. Uh, you're going to be there for six months you can while you're there you're going to secure this province and then you're going to leave in april you know of this year so you kind of get an idea about how long you're going for and that's called a deployment or a tour 
And so our tours to to Afghanistan were generally around the six month mark. And I think that's you're starting to burn out a bit by that by that time because it's intense work and you're you know all hours of, of day and night and and uh, not many days off. So that's kind of the limit of what you could do. But I found myself. It was high stress, and I found myself really fraying mentally by the end of that first tour. I was I was exhausted. What took place through these times is you obviously got a promotion. Um, you go to a special operations team commander. Can you talk through what what that is and, and what the role of, of that would be, and when that took place in in your journey? Yeah. So when I when I finished my training in the uh, reinforcement cycle, I was a troop commander which means i was a captain and it means you're in charge of about 30 30 people it's like same as a platoon almost and in that platoon you've got four three or four smaller teams called patrols in the in the infantry units they're called sections so you've got these small groups that are led by a team and i would lead the the three team leaders or the four team leaders um, and that's kind of a basic unit of deployment. You can take that, you can move them around, you can move around as three pieces, you can work together and cooperate. And that's it's how military units have been set up for a really long, you know, almost thousands of years now. Um, and so when you're a true commander, you, you're you responsible for planning the missions, um, you lead the team in, in, in battle and after battle, and you're basically responsible for what happens. And so it's a, it's a good role, but it's high pressure as well. You're expected to do a lot. It's so just sorry. How many people would you we, three teams? Were you saying three troops should be in command of? Yeah. So when we when when I was over there, this is in two thousand seven. I had four teams of about six guys plus some, some some supporting elements. What did you learn in terms of leadership in, in that stage? Was that like the biggest sort of time for you to be like, fuck, I'm actually leading all these people now? How did you grow as as a leader, and what did you find most important in your leadership style to actually command all these people? I think the most important thing I learned was that if you're if you're going to do something hard like that, you really do need to harness. You need to be be able to make decisions quickly, but you also got to be able to, in planning, harness the skills and capabilities and experience of the people you already have. Because if you put your heads together as a group, you can always come up with a really good plan. If you try and do it individually, it's not going to be anywhere near as good. So I think it's that being willing to, you know, you don't always need to be the one with all the great ideas. You can actually harness the group and then you control kind of what comes out of that. Um, and then when you go on the field, you're expected to lead. But it's a great thing about that unit is everyone there is selected because they have, you know, basic or good leadership skills, even the most junior guys. So you're dealing with everyone that's a kind of a thinker and a doer and that just makes life a lot easier when you're in charge of these teams. They, they act often without being told at all. And when you talk about leadership, obviously you've got to put so much trust into all the, all the guys that you're working with in these high, high-stake missions. Has there ever been any times where it's, you know, you've lost trust of someone in, in a team and been like, fuck, I can't, you know, I can't work with this person anymore? Like, it, you know, they go off and don't do what they're told or they might not execute a mission on what was meant to actually be done and you've had to deal with that yeah it's pretty rare and the reason it's rare is because of the training and selection yeah. because you put under so many situations so often that are so hard that those people just don't get to the end of the training yeah. so and even if they do they're generally they're generally rejected by a team if they're not up to it because there's so much at stake right like the, the teams are good at knowing who's up to standard and who's not yeah 
and and as you said, like they would just they wouldn't make the team in the first place if they were all about themselves or weren't following the right protocols. No, no they wouldn't make it at all. What a big misconception do you feel from the outside public or people that aren't involved in Defence Force or SAS that they might have about what you do? I think people are I think people are surprised when they think soldiers just click their heels and do what they're told and 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 charge the machine guns. Soldiers are all thinking people. They all um, care deeply about what they're doing. They don't just salute and go and follow orders. They really need to be they really need to be brought around, and they they all are interested in what they're doing. They want to do it at the best possible level they can. And I think people are surprised at just how they're decent beings. Um, and I think a, a bad war can turn people, even good people, bad. But all the guys I worked with, all of them, were really good people. Huge. Your wealth of knowledge, your training, the amount of years you've been in the SAS, the Defence Force, as a commander, you're a leader. It, it, through that time, you acquire a certain set of skills that, that not the elite, uh, not the average person would have. You know, now you've written a book, you do a lot of corporate talks and share your story on leadership, resilience, um, bouncing back from, uh, you know, mental health and post-traumatic um, stress from, from these battles. What would you say is a massive skill that you've learned in resilience transitioning from, from uh, the SAS? I think the, the biggest thing is understanding that you can change yourself no matter what situation you're in and you don't need to be defined by kind of your past or or what's happened to you in the past. You can actually change what your future looks like if you're willing to put the work in. I think sometimes people go, well, I can't do that because, you know, I've been a a postie my whole life and I won't be able to change or become the world's top pastry chef. Well, you can actually do it, but you've got to put in, you've got to be willing to to admit to yourself that you can make that change and, and find a new goal and work hard towards it. I think um, people have fallen into the trap of thinking they can get these hacks and they can do these little shortcuts and sometimes you can't. If you want to do something really good, it's going to take you a long time and you've got to have the patience and the humility to to put the work in for that period of time. I think there's sometimes there are no shortcuts and um, persistence over a long period and small changes over a long period is what can do it. You finish up in the SAS after 10 tours, um, 10 deployments. What's the journey like transitioning out of out of combat? Yeah, I took a posting, when I left SAS, I took a posting to the Royal Military College Duntroon, which is um, linked to the, the Defence Academy, which I mentioned. It's more Army-centric, whereas the Defence Academy covers Army, Air Force and Navy. This one's just Army, and it's like a finishing school for army officers it's where you learn how to do platoon level leadership and command and fighting so you're teaching the the guys and girls that are finishing up to travel so i'm now going back and i'm I'm looking at myself kind of 10 years earlier it was surreal it was surreal yeah it was really surreal because i remember being there it's a it's a formative experience as a young person because you're so eager to learn because you know you're about to go out and and lead troops and everyone's nervous about it and you want to be the kind of best at your job as you can as you can be um, and I remember that the instructors with combat experience were just so rare. We didn't really have any back then. Um, and it was a chance for me to go and, and show these kids kind of things that you can learn now that you don't have to go and learn on the battlefield. And so uh, we had a curriculum of stuff we had to teach them. And you do need to learn some of the basics of 
kind of administration and marching and being an officer, but I didn't really care about any of that. And I put all my focus into, I'm going to take you out into the field and I'm going to let you make all your mistakes, uh, all your leadership mistakes now. But I expect you to go out and work hard and, and, and take a risk and um, do all your learning now. So we did these huge missions where I'd take cadets into townships and I'd have a full enemy force and I'd have helicopters and dogs and we'd do these big high-level missions and they'd learn a lot just by getting out there and making these mistakes. Um, and it was great. And I, I, was, I was burnt out, so I found I was having trouble putting in long hours at work, but... Um, uh, it was it was rewarding. It was really good to go full circle and and help people. I flashbacks of of watching some um, videos on YouTube. I'm a sucker for inspirational army videos on YouTube, and there's this one video that really sticks out. It's of a, a US, uh, very high up. I'm not sure what the the title was, but he talks about making your bed. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen this before. Yeah, I think it was um, McRaven, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, it sounds like him. But he's the guy it was that, unbelievable. He's the guy, that, the officer basically that led the um, Bin Laden raid. At, you know, so that was, yeah, yeah. a high-level kind of planner for that mission. Yeah. Is, is that something that you guys actually would talk about? Is like, you know, the little things all add up to the big things, you know, making your bed, doing these sort of things actually correlates to how you live your life? Yeah, it's funny. The, the way military training is structured it's been that way for a long, long time, you know, clean your boots, um, inspect your equipment, make your bed. And the reason they do it, it's kind of the old Mr. Miyagi, right? It's like the reason we're showing you this is because the detail is going to matter and the self-discipline is going to matter when you start getting into combat and you've got a rifle and you've got to do planning and you've got to be meticulous. Um, they really instill that in you from an early age. Uh, transitioning out, as we mentioned, you're at Duntroon teaching, uh, to teaching is probably not the right word, what what's the what would be the I so like instructing instructing yeah. so instructing the youth coming through that are about to transition to the next phase of their journeys, um, something that you know is is prevalent I suppose I'm not sure how common it is but something that can be highly expected in, in a role that you've done and 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 face and done such a, a good job at is is post traumatic stress from mm. from these things and um, you know you've helped so many people with this post your your career in the SAS was it always something that you were passionate in talking about and helping people or was it something where you sort of only realized that you could actually help people by sharing your story i think um it's something that when i first knew i, I was dealing with it i guarded it i guarded it closely because i wanted to keep working in that space i didn't want to i didn't want some uh, mental health issue taking me out of out of that operational space so i i had to kind of deal with it myself i went and, I went and spoke to a psychiatrist and a psychologist and some of them were helpful and some of them weren't but over years I had to basically um, look after myself I had not been looking after myself really and you have to I think when you've got this you've got to accept all right I need to understand what's wrong with me then I need to make all these small changes to my life so that it doesn't dominate me and I can still work Mm -hmm. and I think that was one of the hardest that was one of the hardest bits because you're just not trying to deal with that really Um, and it's not something I talked a lot about until I got out of the army and then went back into kind of keynote speaking and I spoke to some companies about it and um, they really latched onto it. And I I didn't realize this until recently, but it's actually, um, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of mental health issues, even in the workforce because of how we're structured now and smartphones and working long hours. It's um, people are burned out. And what's your messaging to someone that, you know, is, is suffering or is going through something like this? What helped you the most? Like you said then that you weren't looking after yourself. What were you not looking after yourself with? Was it just day-to-day things or giving yourself time to, to breathe or 
um, you know, accept your story and accept your journey. I wasn't doing the basics right. Like you, you, if you don't, if you stop sleeping, if you drink too much um, to try and self-medicate, if you're uh, not eating properly, all these things contribute to your overall physical and mental health. And I think I'd really taken a step back in that front. I meant to, you're meant to be an elite soldier, but I wasn't looking after myself enough. So I went to one uh, guy that was a neuroscientist and a psychologist as well. And he explained the science of it. He goes, your, your mind, you've completely had to rewire it while you've been in combat. You've been overusing a really ancient part of your mind. And while you've been doing that, trying to survive, the more kind of more evolved parts have really taken a back step. They've been benched. So he basically said, we're going to rebalance you. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to concentrate on your diet, exercise. You're going to rest more. Um, you know, you're going to book a surf trip each year with your, with your mates and, and go out and have some fun. And I think being disciplined about that consistently is is hard to do so people get busy they stop doing all oh, that stop, stop exercising you know it's it's hard to do it to have the self-discipline to do that stuff consistently and that's that's kind of what i preach i'm just like just go back to basics look after yourself get some sleep um and, and you'll find your way back to good health i couldn't agree more like when things are going well for me like you know i'm working out i'm eating well drinking water going to bed early but as soon as I get stressed, you know, then I'll start having a beer and, you know, you have a big weekend, then it just fucking snowballs into something else. And, and it, it does really affect you. But like you said, it's that consistency of being on top of these things that actually can get better. You know, it, it'll make things a lot easier. Yeah. And I think too, don't be too hard on yourself. Like you're saying, like you are going to have bad patches where you don't stick to things properly, but as long as you've got that awareness and that you know to correct yourself, you have to go back to that yeah. that different course i think that's the main thing i and even had that last week i had a i was sick three times back to back and i never get that and, and my kid had gone back to um to kind of daycare but i realized i was just like you haven't been trained enough have not been eating well had a few drinks like it just adds up you know cumulatively so uh, yeah you got to watch it i can imagine as well as being in an sas and doing the things that you've been a part of seeing the things that you've seen as mentioned before you're in battle you're like not many people can say they've seen the Taliban, you know, firing at them. They've seen one of their best mates pass away in front of them. How is it coming back to Australia? And as I mentioned before, we're so naive here. We don't know what goes on. We don't see these things being like, fuck, I've just been out here. I've just done all of these things, all these missions. I've, I've done this training. I've done this. But no one would actually have any idea what I've done and no one can relate to what I've done. Mm, it was pretty surreal. I'd, I'd come back. I lived in Cottesloe in Perth. And um, I remember going down to a cafe and sitting there. And uh, this is something I used to do religiously when I was back home. And it was always something I loved doing. But I'd sit there and I'd hear conversations and you'd be like, we're on different planets here. Yeah. Like there's one world that exists in the Middle East where we're fighting and trying to survive. And then there's another world back here. And I, yeah, I actually was resentful about it. I'm like, you guys have no idea. idea. You have yeah. no idea. And I'm, I'm a bit more forgiving now. Like it's not... It's not people's fault. They're not, they're, they're not aware of it or they're not told or the war wasn't sufficiently threatening to Australia's interests for people to really sit up and pay attention. Uh, you know, if there was someone on a doorstep 100 k's off the, off the north coast of Darwin, everyone would be paying attention, but that wasn't the case in, in Afghanistan, at least not after the, um, the initial part of the war. Do you think so, uh, soldiers and SAS and, and Defence Force get enough support on the transition out of their their time served and and supporting the country like i can imagine how hard it is for anyone that's worked a job for you know their whole life 
um, I speak about a lot playing footy. Like it's it's a hard transition to something you know and you've lived and breathed to then just to go out and be doing something else. Is there enough support for you know the people that serve for Australia to, to help transition into the real world? Yeah, it's a lot better than it used to be, right? Like there was nothing, there's really no good mechanisms in place um, many years back, but now you've got all sorts of organisations that help. There's um, Veterans Affairs, there's a lot of non-profits that exist. Um, <clears throat> but I feel like it is quite a fragmented approach. Like there's a lot of support out there, but it's not necessarily tied together. Mm. And there's no... There's no incentive for any organisation to help on the back end. At the front end of a soldier's career, you're trained and trained and trained. And then at the back end, like, why would you invest time and effort and resources in helping people transition out? Yeah. It's just it's just a cost, right? So that's where the gap exists. And that's why I think when people come out, even though they've got great skills, it can sometimes be a bit... Um, you know, discombobulating or whatever that word is where you come out and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do next. Yeah, um, I, I feel like even though you've said this and, and this is so obvious from this chat and, and even from an outside perspective, but you think about what someone like yourself has been through and trained through leadership, resilience, communication, it nearly makes you the most employable person in the world to walk into any workforce and be able to like use these skills and just transfer them into another industry. Yeah, I, and I went to a consulting... I went to business school and then a consulting firm and I had that same frustration that I felt like I had a lot to offer. But I, what I didn't have was... The degree, degrees or... Yeah. yeah. What I didn't have was the, the basic understanding of how business works or the knowledge or that, you know, it's like you can't go to a footy team if you don't know how to kick with your left foot. Mm. Like if, if you don't have that skill, you're not going to be in the team. And so, and that's the kind of equivalent of when I went into business. There were some fundamentals that I didn't know and I think one thing I tell people is like have that uh, that discipline that and the, the understanding that you are going to the bottom of the heap and even you do have a lot of good skills but you've got to learn the basics before you can start using them properly. Fair enough. Mark, tell me about this book because it's unbelievable. We got a copy yesterday. We're very lucky <laughs> to get this, Sam. We, Sam was having we got two. We got one. This is mine, obviously, and I'm going to get you to write a note for me. Survive a life in the, um, in the SAS. You know what I love about this book? It's full of knowledge it's thick Bear Grylls is giving you a pump up on the start it's a powerful honest story of courage redemption and finding purpose and the best thing is the photos in this there's there's a few pictures in this book as well they are unbelievable they actually give me goosebumps of of some of these photos of you like um, in deployment on your tours there's one here that probably looks like you is that in the that was that part is that the part you're talking about uh, so just referencing you with these ropes um, the story we were talking about earlier in wetsuits, fucking in some truck that I've never seen before with some <laughs> guns. Like, it's honestly hectic, some of these things that you've done. Like, what sort of gun is that? That's an M4 with a grenade launcher on the bottom. <laughs> okay. I don't have gun. one of those. <laughs> and, like, the, this stuff here, like, what are some of these photos combining? Like, this is it's, – it's fucking incredible. Yeah, this is all – this this is all kind of um, – Afghanistan so you see how kind of Spartan parts of it are it's like just how do you hide there like how are you where's the shelter you know like there's well that's um where it gets interesting is in the valleys that's where all the the vegetation is right and that's where everyone lives and their farmers down there and and so we found ourselves later going out of the desert into these what what we call the green belt to work in there it's 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 like close country in some ways you go from desert to to almost like thick thick vegetation uh, yeah unbelievable um, talk me through the book. What 
actually takes place in writing a book like this it seems fascinating to me how do you actually go about it like is it a timely process are you literally just jotting down every story is it a chronological order of your, your life like what else can we expect to to read in here um after after i got home after that first battle i mentioned i, I wrote down some notes about it because it had been the the most significant thing that had happened to me. And I knew it would affect me for years after. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm glad I did because the notes that I took about it, I was able to use some of the detail of it um, in the book. And um, it's never encouraged, like Special Forces guys, it's never encouraged to go and write books. Um, but I, I just want, I wanted to. I wanted to tell the story. I think it's important. And I think the important thing for me is that I was you know, respectful about the families of the, the fallen. Yep. And I was respectful about um, making sure there's no operational security issues in there, which I've done. And so if I could achieve those two things, then that's okay. I was happy to put the book out. Um, And I think for the most part, it's going to be a helpful um, addition to the conversation about about, about soldiers and coming home. And um, I first thought about doing this in 2017. I'd I'd spoken to a publisher and um, I kind of shelved it because my boy was born. It wasn't quite the right time. Mm. And I'm glad I waited because when I revisited the idea at the end of 2019, um, I spoke to a publisher again and then I pulled together a book proposal, which is really just a business case. For yeah, how does that work? Yeah, it's like, well, there's, it, it, there's all sorts of things you can search on it, but it's basically a case of you saying as an author, like, this is what I want to write. This is why I think it's an important book. And a publisher, they're going to want to sell. That, that's why they exist as a business. Um, so they're going to want to know what the market size is for it and what's a comparable title and what do you think you can sell. And based on that, they'll say, well, we think this is a timely book. We're looking to acquire it. And then they'll ask you to – they'll sign a contract for you to then write the book. And um, I signed a contract to write um, Survivor, uh, and that was in at the end of 2019 – and basically a couple of weeks, you know, a couple of weeks after I went to Sydney and saw the editor, the place got shut down for COVID. And then I wrote this during lockdown. I spent four months Jesus during Christ. lockdown um, yeah. writing it. And uh, it's kind of surreal. It's like I can't quite remember doing it, but there it is in book format. So I must have. I must have <laughs> yeah, I, I can probably safely say you have done it. There is some words in here. You write in the book, there's a, there's a really powerful part here saying, um, I didn't anticipate the cost of war, professional, personal and human. Can you discuss that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think I studied kind of military history and you, you read about battles and all that stuff, but I don't think I fully – I always thought about what it would be like to train and get to fight, but I never thought about the part after, which is how do you kind of reconcile it and how do you move on then for the rest of your life. Um, and that part was, I guess, a little bit harder than I thought it would be. And that's that's where in this book I wanted to talk about that part explicitly mm. – um, and that's how I kind of pitched it to the publisher too. I'm like, this I won't make this strictly a military memoir. This will actually be about leaving these situations and trying to find a way back into life. And there's that gives it a broader audience. And there's all sorts of parallels you can pull to that. That you know you will face hardships in life, but there is another way out. Um, yeah. And that's what I love about your character, mate. And and look, we haven't even we've touched on one facet of who you are today, but. You're a fashion designer. You got your own label, Kill Capture, as well. You're a model, entrepreneur, public speaker, a veteran. It looks like, from my point of view, and, and what you've been through now, you've really acted on those things, and, and you're a doer. You have transitioned, and you've found these multifacets of your life, and and other things, not letting one thing define you, but others as well. Is that was that the goal of of transitioning? I suppose. Yeah, I think um, 
Oh, one thing, my mum died quite young. I was 23. She was 50 when she died. She got cancer. And um, this is just before I'd been to the SAS. And that was a real uh, kind of a wake-up call for me, I guess. It was like you might not have as much time as you think. And um, it gave me that sense of kind of desperation to try and do things. And I think I always checked in with myself after. I was like, are you, am I trying to do all this stuff because you're trying to outrun any your issues or something but I think no I think I just wanted to try a lot of different things and find something that was that was motivating and fun and that's why I did the tv show I was like oh this looks like bloody good yeah. fun you know and, uh, and it was it was great fun and I met Sam my wife on the on this tv show so it was it was funny you've <laughs> mate you've done it all as you said you leave there you go over to the US in New York you study business at one of the best Ivy League schools over there that's when you launch a new brand uh, new brand you've, you've got your established brand now kill capture um, talk us through that. What? How did this come about? It looks. <laughs> I honestly love it. I don't think I could pull it off because I'm a little dweeb. I feel like you need to be like 190. Very. Everyone. Uh, everyone. <laughs> I, I feel like people wouldn't take me seriously. I, I hope they would. I um, when I was going over to the US, I, I didn't really have like a proper wardrobe. You leave in the army, you know, you don't have a lot of that stuff. But I thought, you know, what do I want to wear when I'm over there? I'd always want a leather jacket, so I, I saved some money and I was poking around in the US for a decent leather jacket and all the brands I was looking at, I'm like, Oh, these aren't really that good. And I didn't like the values and the branding. And I was it's like, like a Mick Jagger style, was it? It was <laughs> like, uh, you know, like there's like diesel kind of faux tough yeah, brands. Yeah. And I thought, imagine if you had like a legit ex special ops streetwear brand, you know, that there's, there's a gap for that. And I don't think, um, uh, garment design is sufficiently hard enough that it stops people from doing it. Like I, I, I went to the garment district with this idea to build a cool leather jacket and all I had was a phone number of a guy, of a lady that was a designer in there. And I went Sounds in. Sounds like a story a lot earlier with the right. SAS guy that you called up randomly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just got a habit of cold calling yeah. people. And um, yeah, and she took me on and goes, this is how we build garments. We, you know, we sketch them out, we design them. We, and I went out in the garment district and chose everything for this jacket and got it built and designed and, and rolled it out at a fashion show at, um, at business school. And I was just motivated by that, that whole thing of, uh, you know, how do I explain what combat was like? I remember having that thing. I'm like, well, one of the best ways with a clothing brand is you can do everything from a product to a video to a, you know, to branding and copy. And that's kind of what I've tried to do with a brand is is say, you know, this is what it's like to be an elite team. This is what it's like to prioritize a mission and a team over yourself. And that's where I think it's just, it's a different approach to, to streetwear with different values and it, it for a certain segment of people, it really resonates. For hundred percent. What if, what else is in the works of for Kill Capture? Is there any other garments you're looking at creating? Yeah, there is. There's a, a female jacket called the Juliet. Um, after that's like the uh, the that's like the military kind of symbology for for the J call sign. We call it the Romeo and Juliet. Yes. So Juliet jacket will be the female jacket. We've got handmade. Uh, tomahawks coming from the US. Jesus. <laughs> we've got, uh, so it's like a type of gifts, ca- capsules. We've got a bunch of accessories coming. So belts, we've got, uh, you know, a watch partnership we've got up and running. So we're trying to build basics for, for men that will really last a long time. Unreal. So is that Kill Capture? Where, how can we find that? Killcapture.com? Uh, Killcapture.com. Capture spelt with a K. We love that, KK. <laughs> Fantastic. And my photo tells about the book as well. That's on the 25th. So yeah. where can we get our hands on this? Is this at every good bookstore? It will be, yeah, it'll be all, all the major bookstores. You can actually pre-order it now. Um, Fantastic. And you can do that through my website, which is markwales.com.au uh, forward slash book. And there's, you know, it's available for pre-order now. So all the e-commerce sites have it and yep. um, 
they just reduce the price, which is really annoying. But yeah, get in well, there. get in there and read. It's definitely <laughs> worth it. Um, after today, I think everyone's going to be ordering this. We'll also have that in the show notes, guys and girls. So make sure um, you check that out and, and give it an order, a pre-order, or, or get into the stores, mate. You've done it, as we said. You've you've done a lot in your life. Um, now you've got a beautiful young son, um, family. You said to Samantha's is you know life's great. What's what's next for you? Is there anything else you want to sort of try your toes out and, and really jump into oh, the water? Yeah, there is. I've always wanted, <laughs> I've always wanted to be an extra on a Mad Max film. <laughs> I'm, like, do you need the number like of someone there? You just want to call I, the director? I like, found, yeah, I yeah. found the casting company. I'm going to write to him and be like, hey, take me as an extra in a Mad Max film because they're filming the. Um, the Furiosa prequel in Australia. And I was like, oh, because uh, originally they were going to do the last Mad Max like 10 years ago. And it was going to be filmed in Australia. And then the drought broke and they couldn't film it there. So they went to Namibia. And so they didn't take as many Aussie extras, but this time they're in Australia. So yeah, I'll try and stick my head in and get on the set. <laughs> Unbelievable. Mark, honestly, I cannot thank you enough for coming in today, mate. You have such an incredible story. It's so powerful of what you've been able to do um, and how you've been able to overcome you know, certain things that have, have transpired in your life. Um, you're an absolute go-getter, mate, and we, we love that. We love people to just have a crack, and you absolutely sum that up. So it's honestly a privilege uh, to have you in the studio, hear your story, and um, in, in all honesty and, and all seriousness to everyone, thank you so much for your service for our country. And, um, yeah, it's been a real privilege having you. Mate, thanks for having me and uh, love what you guys are doing and, and hope, uh, hope we get to meet again and, and get a beer somewhere too. We should definitely have some beers. <laughs> <laughs> if that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. An exclusive loyalty subscription featuring the debrief podcast of each episode and bonus Q&As from Patreon members like this. Is there anything else out there that you'd go, I'd love to try my hands at that, but probably can't do it? Definitely like uh, like an aerospace engineer at SpaceX. So With Elon? To, yeah. We Call him. The first the first um, people to put you know people on Mars or something, that would be unreal. Be huge. You, okay, this is it a might weird. be a bridge too far. No, it's not. Not for you, mate. I seriously don't think it is for you. Maybe for someone else. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends, or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you like the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review, or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.